This morning our, our passage is Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 22. But Saul, still breathing, breathing threats and, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the, to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised, and taking food, he was strengthened." For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Thank you. Well, it has been a joy being with you so far. <laughs> um, I expect that to continue. Um, and uh, after last night's talent show, I look at some of you in a whole new light. That was very revealing. Um, talent, I think, inverted commas in some situations. But, uh, but that was wonderful. Um, lovely. Um, uh, to have uh, this time together. And um, lovely to be in this part of the world. Again, as I said yesterday, why would you go away when you live here? Um, so I had a lovely cycle around some of the countryside around here this morning before breakfast, and uh, just uh, lovely to see God's creation, which you get to enjoy on a daily basis. And it helps when the sun shines, doesn't it? 
um, as well. Well, let's turn back to Acts chapter 9, and um, we're going to be looking at this chapter. As you remember, we said yesterday we're looking at these um, three chapters now, 8, 9, and 10. Three individuals whom God uses to bring three other other individuals uh, to know Jesus. But before that, um, I won't get us to discuss this this morning. We're not round tables. Uh, but here's a kind of icebreaker question for you to think about, at least. Um, uh, I guess we all maybe know the story of Winnie the Pooh. Okay. Um, think of the characters in Winnie the Pooh. You've got Winnie the Pooh. I don't know how you'd describe him. A little bit simple, very likable. Um, you've got Piglet, um, perhaps a bit naive. Uh, you've got Owl, old and wise. Uh, you've got Tigger, uh, bouncing with enthusiasm. Uh, you've got Eeyore, very loyal, but a little bit pessimistic about life. Out of all of those characters, I wonder which character you identify with. I won't get you to shout it out. I wonder if anyone here identifies with Eeyore. Um, I, I like Eeyore, because he is a bit of a pessimist, but he's loyal. And actually, as we are going to see this morning, um, Ananias, who is the character we're going to think about um, in this story, is a bit of an Eeyore. Um, Yesterday, when we looked at Philip, Philip was full of enthusiasm, wasn't he? He was just bouncing up and down, waiting to think, well, where else can I go? Who else can I speak to? What else can I do? When the Lord says to Ananias, I want you to go and speak to Paul, Saul, he doesn't want to go, does he? Um, well, understandably, you might say. And yet he does. And it's wonderful what happened as a result. But the wonderful lesson is that God uses all types. God uses the Tigger types, bouncing with enthusiasm. But he can also use the Eeyore types if we're obedient and we're willing to go. So whoever we are, whatever our natural temperament, God can use us. But actually, the story doesn't start with Ananias. He only crops up halfway through the story. In fact, quite often when we look at chapter 9, we don't even think about him at all, do we? We only think about Saul. Maybe we think about the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. We forget the human instruments, and that is significant, as we'll see. But as we thought about last night, in all of these stories, we see God at work before people turn up on the scene. Before Philip met the Ethiopian, God had been at work. And before Ananias meets Saul, we see that God is at work. And we said before we meet people, we can be expectant that perhaps God is already at work in their lives. And look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, by the way, that's an interesting description of Christians, isn't it? Um, Christian hasn't been used yet uh, to describe Christians. Um, There are lots of descriptions, and that's one of them, the way. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, here's the question. If you were to meet Saul somewhere on the Damascus Road at this point, before what is about to happen, would you think this guy is about to become a Christian? Uh, Would you think that here is the man who's going to be one of the main instruments that God uses to turn the world upside down. Here is the author of half of the New Testaments. Of course you wouldn't, would you? 
From human eyes, from a human perspective, he looks like the least likely person that God would be about to use in that way. And yet, of course, we know how the story proceeds. And as we said yesterday, as we look at people, we don't know what's going on underneath the surface. Sometimes we can make judgments, can't we? Well, this person seems really open and interested. This person seems really hostile and negative. Well, you don't get much more hostile than than Saul on the road to Damascus. And yet, and yet actually, God has already been at work in his life. Why do we know that? Well, Although we have this story in chapter 9 of Saul's conversion, we have it repeated by Saul himself twice before the book of Acts finishes. Over in um, chapter 26, um, Saul shares his testimony, as we might call it. And in chapter 26, verse 14, when he describes this event, um, he says this, We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, you're all farming folks, so I don't need to describe that uh, expression about kicking against the goads. Um, But interestingly, what does that imply? It implies that even though Saul outwardly is hostile towards Christianity, there's obviously a battle going on in his heart. The spirit has been goading, prompting, working in Saul's life. And yes, he's been kicking against it, but his hostility is not because there is nothing going on. His hostility is because there is something going on. He was there, wasn't he, in chapter 6. And we're told that he was there when Stephen is being martyred. He would have seen that incredible um, case of bold Christian witness. He would have heard Stephen's talk uh, before he was killed. He's seen stuff, he's heard stuff, and there's a battle going on. And sometimes we can think, oh, people, they're really far from, from Christian, the Christian faith because it seems that they're hostile, but maybe it's because there's a battle going on. Uh, it was a joy recently to have a lad in our church from a Muslim background come to faith and, and be baptised, and it's been wonderful seeing him. But, but for weeks before that, he was arguing and rejecting and you know, really outwardly you know, trying to disprove the Christian faith. It wasn't a, a gentle kind of like, oh, this all looks very nice kind of. No, it wasn't. That was a battle. And then finally he came to the point of saying, yeah, it's true. So sometimes we kind of like it to be neat and tidy, don't we? You know, people kind of show increasing interest and they get more and more close. To it. But sometimes it doesn't work like that. There's a battle going on and God is at work. And then... Um, As he nears Damascus, verse 3, he falls to the ground and he hears this voice speaking and it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what's interesting about that verse? Well, Jesus is saying to Saul, why are you persecuting me? But where is Jesus? He's in heaven, isn't he? (laughs) Who has Saul been persecuting? It can't be Jesus, can it? Because Jesus is in heaven. Who's he been persecuting? He's been persecuting Christians. That's the people he's been persecuting. But Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? He says, why do you persecute me? That's interesting, isn't it? Remember what we said, if you can remember back on Friday night, uh, when Luke begins the gospel, he says, this is 
in my former book, Luke's Gospel, I told you about what Jesus began to do and teach with the implication that the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do. And we said the point is that Jesus is still at work in this world, but now he's at work through his people. But isn't this an incredible thought here, that Jesus is so identified with us, his people, that what people do to us is the same as what they do to him. Remarkable. Just let us sink in for a moment. Jesus is so identified with us that what someone does to you is the same as what they would do to him. And when someone hurts you, he is hurt by that too. That's a profound thought, isn't it? Jesus takes that unity with his people. And Saul isn't just persecuting his people, he's persecuting Christ. Uh, Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men travelling there were speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. He opened his eyes but couldn't see anything. They led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Now again, this is interesting. Saul's experience of coming to discover Jesus is a fascinating one because before things get better, they actually get worse, don't they? Uh, For three days, here is Saul, blind, physically, hungry, not able to eat anything. He's in a mess. And again, sometimes God has to bring us to the end of ourselves before we come to discover him. Sometimes it's as if things have to get worse before things get better. Sometimes God has to humble us from our pride, from our self-sufficiency. Think of Saul, incredibly proud, incredibly self-sufficient, and God humbles him. But he does it graciously, doesn't he? Sometimes God graciously pulls the rug from under us, not ultimately to destroy us, but ultimately to show us that we need him. But interestingly, look back at what... um, what he's told. Verse 6, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Here is Saul, he's on the Damascus road, he's got Jesus himself speaking to him and what does Jesus do? He says, go to Damascus and something's going to happen. That's a bit strange. I mean, why didn't Jesus just finish the job? I mean, you don't really get a better evangelist, do you? I mean, here is literally the risen Jesus talking to Paul, and Paul, and he tells him, what does he tell him? He just says, go to Damascus, and there's someone else that's going to turn up. And interestingly, the person that he wants to use is this guy called Ananias. He doesn't even want to go. <laughs> But why does God do this? Why does he go to all the trouble of encountering Saul only to leave him blind so that he has to go to Damascus so that some guy who doesn't even want to go goes and talks to him? But I think it shows how committed God is to using us. See, God could have done it without Ananias, couldn't he? On the Damascus road, Jesus could have explained the gospel. He could have prayed for Saul. He could have had everything done and dusted there and then, job done. No need for Ananias, no need for... But he doesn't, does he? 
God goes to incredibly great lengths to get Ananias in on the act. And I think that shows us something that we see again and again in the book of Acts, is that God is committed to using us. Sometimes when we read this story, we just kind of think like, wouldn't it be great if God just zapped people? You know, like people just walking along one day and bang, zaps them and and they just become Christians. But even here that didn't happen. Yes, you could say God massively encountered Saul, but he still used a guy called Ananias to be part of that process. And God is committed to using us. A lovely friend and mentor of mine, as I mentioned the other day, Michael Green, had a lovely expression. He said this. He said, without God, we cannot. But without us, he will not. Hear that? Without God, we can't. But without us, God won't. In other words, of course, we can't do anything of real eternal significance on our own. But... God is also committed to using us in that process of introducing other people to Jesus and will go to great lengths, even to use reluctant people like Ananias to do that job. Again, sometimes we we talk about God opening people's eyes and this is often the the story that we think about, isn't it? Although ironically, of course, God closes his eyes physically before they get opened. But actually, where are his eyes open? They're open later on, aren't they, when Ananias is there? Not on the Damascus Road. In fact, over in chapter 26 again, very interestingly, when when Paul is sharing his his testimony and he talks about what Jesus says, um, Acts 26, verse 17, Jesus says to, to Saul, to Paul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes. And send them from darkness to light. So, so Jesus says to Saul, I'm sending you to go and open people's eyes. See? It's not just God going around zapping people and opening people's eyes. It's God using people like Ananias and Saul later on to do that. And God using people like us. Could do it without us, but he's chosen not to. And that's a wonderful privilege as well, isn't it? That God chooses to use us. But as I said, Ananias isn't so keen on this idea, is he? Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done for your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, do I really need to go? <laughs> Are you sure? Um, did, you, did I hear you right? And of course, you can understand Ananias' reluctance. But then the Lord says again, verse 15, go, this man is my chosen instrument. And so Ananias he goes, doesn't he? Um, he's reluctant, but he goes. And ultimately, what's key is not whether we're bouncing with enthusiasm or not. It's are we obedient? Are we willing to go? I also find this really encouraging because although I work as an evangelist, although I go and do mission weeks, 
I find there are some days and some parts of my life where I am bouncing with enthusiasm. I just want to get involved. I want to get stuck in. I, I, it's so exciting. I'm, I'm really, you know, I just love doing it. And there are other times when I don't want to. Uh, there are some times when I'm driving off to do a mission week somewhere and I think, I don't really want to go here. <laughs> I didn't feel that coming this weekend, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, do I have to? It's hard work. And for different reasons, we can feel discouraged. And sometimes I'm going, oh, if I, if I don't feel like doing it, I'm being a hypocrite if I do this. There's a kind of school of thought that says, if you don't feel like doing it, don't do it. But actually, that's rubbish. I have found, actually, that often if you don't feel like doing it, just go and do it. Have you ever thought, what if Ananias hadn't gone? I mean, I'm sure the Lord could have used someone else, another disciple. But he would have missed out, wouldn't he? Imagine missing out on that. I could have been the one that got to pray for the Apostle Paul, and I didn't go. What might we miss out on because we don't listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit? What wonderful joys and privileges might we miss out on because of our reluctance or our fear? And you know what? So often I, I go away on a mission week and I think to myself, oh, I don't want to go. But so often I come back and I think, I'm so glad I did. Because we see what the Lord does. And that is a kind of principle in life often, isn't it? The things that are hard... With hindsight, the things that are often most worthwhile. And the things that are easy in the moment, in hindsight, aren't often the things that we're so thankful for. And let's be honest, talking about Jesus, it can feel hard. My natural tendency is probably reluctance, fear, anxiety, or whatever. And yet, if I, if I obediently speak up and step out, what might I see God do? I remember chatting to my friend Michael Green, and I said to him, what do you sometimes do if you're feeling just flat in your Christian life? You know, there are times, aren't there, where maybe we just feel flat and, and just not experiencing the joy of, of the Lord. And he says, you know what I do? He says, I, I need to probably talk to someone about Jesus. He says, because what I found is that as I share the gospel with others, that reminds me of the joy of the gospel myself. I found that to be true in my own life as well. As we share the gospel, one of the blessings of that is that it reminds us of the wonder of the gospel, especially when you see other people coming to discover the joy of Jesus. I mentioned yesterday about this lad who came to faith. I remember meeting up with him just before we went back for the summer. And we met up and I was feeling a bit discouraged that morning. We met up for coffee. We had an hour or so together. I came away from that meeting so encouraged. So encouraged seeing the evidence of God working in this guy's life. I thought, wow, what a privilege. So even if we feel reluctant, let's step out in faith. Well, Ananias does go obediently and he encounters Saul. And then in verse 17, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised and after taking some food he regained his strength. Ananias goes, that lovely phrase, brother Saul, um, and he 
places his hands symbolically to pray for him. And as we said yesterday, we praying for someone can be such a powerful thing to do. In this situation, of course, Ananias is praying for Saul to have his eyes opened, and he does physically and spiritually. But also, as I said yesterday, don't just think about prayer as something that we might do for someone when they're ready to become a believer. See, praying for someone can be one of the most powerful things that we can do. Even offering to pray for someone shows something incredible about the gospel. And if we get to pray for someone, it also models what the gospel is like, the kind of relationship we can have. A couple of stories on that. Um, Years ago, doing a um, mission week in Leicester at the uh, University of Leicester, um, I was doing one of the lunchtime events and this girl walked in, it's about 20 years ago now, and I'll never forget it because she walked in and she said, where is that guy? I said, what do you mean? Where is the guy I met yesterday? I said, sorry, who? There was a guy, I met him yesterday, he gave me a flyer and I was talking to him and he said he would pray for me. I said, sorry? And she described him. And I said, oh, I think you're talking about Steve. Yes, where is he? Oh, he's, he's not here yet. He's back later. Well, I want to talk to him. Why? Because I want to know why he wants to pray for me. I said, sorry. Yes, he was talking to me, and he said that he would pray for me. And evidently what had happened is she had been very, very hostile towards him and told him in not so many words what she thought of Christianity and And yet, Steve, the only thing he could really say in that conversation was just, well, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. That's all he said. And that phrase had obviously bugged her so much for 24 hours that she just couldn't get it out of her head. Why does this guy want to pray for me? So she came back to find him, to hear. She came to all the events. She kept coming through that. I'm not sure whether she ever came to faith ultimately. But that that little phrase, I'll pray for you, just got through the skin and connected and communicated something. And being able to offer to pray for someone can be very powerful. Um, when we moved into our house where we live now, just outside um, Leicester, um, we tried to get to know obviously the neighbours around us. Um, and uh, our neighbour on, on the right, um, we chatted a little bit. He was like superficially friendly. Um, and, and we got into kind of a few conversations. Um, he, um, he's gay. His, his partner sadly died um, a couple of years before. And, um, uh, but he goes regularly to, to Catholic Mass at um, a church nearby. Um, and one day he was there and um, my wife gave him a copy of my book. And the next day he came back and said, oh, I've been reading your book. It's really interesting, like fascinating. Uh, next day, um, pulled up the drive said hello, walked straight past us, completely blanked us, didn't want to talk to us. And I said, oh, either something's gone wrong at school, or maybe he didn't like chapter four. Um, And uh, we discovered later it was the latter. Um, Not that I was embarrassed about what I said, but but obviously, you know, there was a a hostility there. And for probably a couple of months, um, he wouldn't talk to us at all. Very hostile, very negative. Um, uh, towards us. And so one day, coming home from school, he's a teacher, um, he got a puncture. Uh, he's not the most practical guy, so he said, could you help me uh, fix the tyre? So I said, sure. So I um, helped him fix the tyre. 
And then I think he felt a little bit sheepish because he hadn't talked to us for about two months beforehand. But we just generally tried to be kind and, and everything else. And that you know, broke down some of the barriers. And, and we continued to get to know him. Uh, eventually, um, we had him around for dinner and, and the relationship warmed. And then a couple of weeks later, we were just chatting and he said, oh, do you want to pop around for a cup of tea? And he just talked about a friend who's been diagnosed with cancer. And just how sad he was about that. One of his closest friends, his partner, had died of cancer a few years before. Um, and then he said, he said, can you pray for me? And I said what I said yesterday. Well, um, I can do it when I get home or I can do it now if you like. And he said, well, actually now would be great. And, and so I was able to pray for him there. And, and he found that incredibly moving. And I thought, wasn't that wonderful? This guy from real hostility is asking for prayer. And you see, when we are able to pray for someone in that situation, what we're doing is actually we're modelling the gospel. You see, when we tell people about the gospel, we're saying you can have a relationship with God, you can know his friendship and so on. But when we pray with someone, we can show someone a bit of what that's like. And we can do that, can't we? As we said yesterday, when we ask people, how are you doing? Ask them again, how are you really doing? Normally, there is something that is going on, isn't there? And to be able to offer to pray, either there and then or later, models something of what we're trying to communicate. So let's not be afraid to pray. It is a little bit scary, isn't it? I found that a little bit scary, but hey, some scary things are worth doing. And so he prays, and Saul's eyes are opened. He gets up, he's baptised, he has something to eat. Um, And what a joy Ananias has to be part of that. But then just look at the last couple of verses. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Yet Saul grew, verse 22, more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Interesting, by the way, the words that are used in the book of Acts. Um, It's not just preaching, it's proving, it's persuading, it's engaging, it's dialoguing. All of these words describe what's happening. But who's doing it? It's, It's Paul, isn't it? Paul comes to know Jesus, and what does he do? Does he go to Cape and Ray Hall to do a you know, course in evangelism? No, no, nothing against courses in evangelism at Cape and Ray Hall, but he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't get a degree in theology. The first thing he does is he just starts talking about Jesus. See, what is the one qualification we need to share Jesus? It's to have met him. And once we've met him, in a sense, that's all we need to get going. Now, of course... We'll spend our lives learning more, maybe learning how to answer some of those complicated questions and so on. But here's the thing I've discovered. Actually, often the people who are best at sharing Jesus are the people who've just met him. And that's for two reasons, possibly. Firstly, on a practical level, people who've just met Jesus still have lots of friends who don't know Jesus. And sometimes there's a danger when we've known Jesus for a long time that we've lost some of those friendships and perhaps the challenge is that we need to make some But also, people who've just discovered Jesus are amazed at God's grace to them. Think of of Saul. One minute he's persecuting the church and the next minute he's discovered the grace of God. And he's blown away by it. It's just so natural, isn't it, to want to share that with others. 
Maybe one of the dangers is if we've known Jesus for a while, we've lost a sense of that wonder. We've got used to the grace of God. We've forgotten how incredible it is that God would love someone like us. And we need to pray that God will amaze us afresh by that grace. But also there is an encouragement here, and that is, as we've seen before, when we do mission, we create ripples. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch. One guy and a whole continent comes to discover Jesus. Here's Saul. One guy Ananias meets. It's the only guy we ever read about Ananias leading to Jesus. And yet, of course, think of what Saul did. The impact of that. The impact of one individual. And God can do massive things through one person, can't he? So maybe we need to think, who are the people around us who might seem least likely to ever discover Jesus? And maybe we need to pray that God is at work in their life. And maybe, actually, God is already at work in their life. And maybe we need to pray for the opportunity to be courageous, like Ananias, in spite of our fears and anxieties. So we never know what might happen. So let's have a moment of quiet. And just before I pray, um, maybe a, a moment just to think of those that God has brought into contact with us who don't yet know Jesus. Maybe people that we've written off. Maybe people that seem like Saul, very unlikely. Maybe in that moment, a renewed commitment to pray for them. That God would be at work in their hearts. And maybe in the quiet, also a renewed commitment to be courageous in spite of our natural anxieties. To take the opportunities to talk about you when we get them. Heavenly Father, thank you that you can use us when we are full of enthusiasm, but even when we feel reluctance. Thank you that if we are willing to step out in obedience, you can use us. Lord, help us. We have lots of natural anxieties and fears, but please give us the courage to step out. And as we do, thrill us with unexpected joys of seeing people discovering you. Father, thank you that you are committed to using us. Lord, you could do it without us, but you want us to be in on the joy of it. And we thank you that we get to be part of what you're doing in this world and what you're doing in people's lives. Help us to be sensitive and obedient to you. Thank you for your grace to us. Help us not to get used to it. Forgive us if we have. Thrill us afresh 
with the wonder of your love. And Lord, I pray for maybe any here this morning that have not yet come to discover that for themselves. I pray, Lord, that they would see the wonder of what you've done for them and turn to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.